Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. And welcome to Knocked Up, the podcast about fertility and women's health. You are joined as always by me, Geordie Morrison, and Dr. Rayleigh Alou, CREI Fertility Specialist. In today's episode, we're answering your questions about eggs. Rayleigh, eggs. We thought it was a perfect episode for Easter Monday to talk all about the egg. So I Absolutely. have to... <laughs> I posted some questions um, on our Instagram feed at Dr. Rayleigh Lou and at Knocked Up. And so we're going to talk all about the egg and also answer listener questions throughout. Now, Rayleigh, I have the first question and that is, I always see the word, is it oocyte, oocyte? How do I say it? Well, look, I guess it's contentious, but I say oocyte and I think most people do in English. But, you know, in different languages, we use different words for egg uh, and, you know, and different terms, whether it be the lay term or whether it be the scientific term from Latin. But oocyte uh, just means egg cell. And an egg cell is an incredible cell. It's an amazing cell, unlike any other cell actually in the human body, even unlike sperm. And it's a cell that gives half of our DNA to a baby and generates together with the sperm genetic diversity in the next generation. And that's really a strategy that we use to make sure that our offspring are healthy and that there's room, I guess, for evolution and natural selection that, you know, when we as a population of humans, relates to any species, but when we encounter changing environments, which we inevitably will, there will be some characteristics that give us an advantage and some characteristics that are less advantageous. And having that variation, that genetic variation within a population ensures that as a species that we have the best chance to survive and thrive. And that's why when we have children, they all look a little bit different from each other. And while they're a little bit like each parent or each kind of genetic parent, they're also quite different and unique in themselves. And part of what the egg does is actually create changes in our genome and allows us to create a whole new situation that didn't actually exist in either parent. And that's through a process called meiosis, which is a unique form of cell division that occurs only in the generation of sperm and eggs. So how is an egg made? Eggs and sperm are quite different. So when eggs are made, there's a time in human development where that happens. And it's finite time and it occurs between 6 and 12 weeks gestation when we as a female are actually a fetus. And they're made from primordial germ cells. So this area of cells in what will be the ovary differentiate to be primordial germ cells and they eventually become oocytes. And it takes quite a long time for them to develop. And then they're kind of all arrested at a very, very early early stage of development 
So they start going through that process of meiosis when they're being made, back when we're a fetus in utero, and then that process arrests and it doesn't resume until later in life when we're ready to ovulate. It's pretty amazing really. Egg cells are the biggest cell in the human body. They're almost visible with the human eye if you strain, but they're very visible with the microscope. They're about 150 microns on average. Obviously, they're smaller eggs and bigger eggs always, same with any cell, but they're about 150 microns on average, which is roughly 100 times smaller than a poppy seed. So pretty little when you think about it, you know, in our kind of big terms. But when you think about it, if you look at a skin cell, you can't see a skin cell. You know, you see skin, you don't see the the cells. So, you know, for a cell, they're, they're enormous. And that's because they have to have within them the energy and the, I guess, the factory, the, the kind of um, hardware to make a human embryo. And actually, when we look at embryos in the lab, when they're growing or in the body, it's the same. The embryo itself, up until between five to seven days of development, actually does not exceed the size of the original egg. So it's like the cytoplasm, which is the cellular insides splits into smaller cells that are all smaller than the original egg cell within the confines of what's called the zona pellucida, which is the kind of peptidoglycan layer around the egg, which is like a little fence around the egg or the eggshell, you might say. So it's all within that confines until the embryo hatches and the embryo has to hatch in order to implant and, and that happens usually around day six or seven. So how can we influence egg quality if they're made while we're still in utero? So this is a question that has come up a lot and it's also something that we see a lot on the internet and I guess, you know, we're going to say, well, what is egg quality? It's quite a nebulous term really. When I think about egg quality, I think of it really in two broad categories and that is one, the DNA complement. So the instruction manual, is it intact or is it abnormal? And also the egg's metabolic potential, which means how the egg makes energy, the cellular structure you know, the insides of the egg. Unfortunately, while we would like to be able to influence those things, we literally can't. The egg is made already and it is unreachable. It is absolutely unreachable. It is encased in cells that are called granulosa cells, the outer which layer make the follicle in the ovary that the egg nests in. It has zero blood supply. The egg cannot achieve nutrition directly from the bloodstream. It's protected. And so the egg packs its picnic basket when it is made. It has all the energy, all the nutrients, all the building blocks it will ever receive as an egg at that point. So no amount of things that we ingest through our diet, be that in the forms of supplements or be that in the forms of food or vitamins, will influence that egg at that point, right? So if, if that's the intrinsic egg quality, it is untouchable. It is related very much to age. What might influence our daughter's eggs is what we ingest at the time and our, our general health at the time that we are making the fetus. Like that's very feasible. That at the time those eggs were being generated, the general health of the mother might affect her daughter's eggs. Our own eggs, by changing our behaviour, we will not change our egg quality, unfortunately. And it is very much related to age. And what we can do to have better egg quality when we're having babies 
is either have babies young because our egg quality is at its best when we're young or if we're not going to have babies young while we're still young thinking about it and putting some eggs in the freezer for later so that those eggs retain their intrinsic qualities that they have when they are younger. The DNA complement of the egg is more likely to be normal when we are younger and that is because of that process of meiosis that I mentioned earlier. So meiosis actually reactivates and finishes the job, if you like, at the time that an egg is recruited into an ovulation cycle. So the actual trigger for that meiosis starting up again is the LH surge that happens around a natural ovulation or the trigger medication in an IVF or egg freezing context. That is the starting gun for the meiosis resuming. And what the egg starts off with is four times the amount of DNA that it's going to give to a baby. This is part of how we create genetic diversity. You and I have a copy of every chromosome from each of our parents. So what we do as an egg is we double it. So we take a photocopy of all our DNA. So you actually have the half of your DNA you got from your mum, the half of your DNA you got from your dad, and you double it. So you've got four times the amount in an egg. And then the egg undergoes a genetic diversity event called crossing over, which is very cool. And that involves chromosomes lining up on spindles in the cell and they swap information. So a little bit from this chromosome goes to that chromosome, a little bit from this chromosome goes to that chromosome. And so we create, in effect, a new chromosome that contains some of the information from your mum and some of the information from your dad without being the whole chromosome from that parent. So it's, it's pretty cool. It's a mashup. It's a DNA mashup. It's really mashup. cool. And when you talk about it with the spindles and there's double the amount of DNA from your mum and from your dad and the crossing over of information, it is actually totally a miracle that so many babies are born normal. Look, it is. And it's it's also not a mystery that a lot of the time, even in completely healthy reproduction, there's some you know eggs and sperm that make mistakes. And a lot of the time they just burn out early and we don't actually even know about it. So a lot of the time those mistakes happen in a cycle where you've had sex around the time that you were going to ovulate and probably there was an embryo, but it probably just made a mistake and that was it. And it didn't really show its face to the light of day, but it doesn't mean it wasn't there. In terms of that, what the goal, what's the goal of meiosis? So the, the goal of meiosis is to create an egg that has a 50% chromosome complement. So it's what we call a haploid cell, meaning it's got half the DNA required to make a healthy baby. It's got to have a copy of every single volume of that DNA encyclopedia. And they have to have every gene, every instruction chapter to make a healthy human. And the idea is that that egg will start off with four times the amount of DNA. They'll have the, the mashup. Then it'll chuck out two little packages called polar bodies, one at the time of ovulation, one at the time of fertilization. And then it receives, at the time that it's chucking out that second polar body, it receives another haploid DNA complement from the sperm so that together the sperm and the egg have the right amount of DNA in total to make a unique new human that has half of its DNA from each parent and a mixture of DNA from each grandparent. So that's kind of how reproduction happens. The process of kicking out those extrapolar bodies is really intense and energy requiring and 
the egg's metabolic capability, its ability to do things right is better at a younger age. So it's just like, you know, imagine when you have had a great night's sleep compared to when you're really tired, your ability to do a complex task will be better. So think of it like that, that the eggs, when we're young, you know, they're metabolically at their best. Yes, they'll still make mistakes. Some eggs will always make mistakes, but the rate of making a mistake is much less than when we're older. We get to an age where our eggs are really tired. The age will be slightly different for different people. It doesn't necessarily, it's not like you turn 35 and a light switch flicks. At, at, at a particular age, in a particular individual, there'll come a time where more eggs make mistakes than not. And there will come a time for us all where every single egg will no longer have the capability to do it. Just like when you're 10 years old and I tell you to run up a hill, I know that you're going to be able to do it. But if I ask granny to run up a hill, there'll be a time point where she just can't do it anymore. And it's the same with eggs. So there'll be an eventual time where at a point in our lives, we can't make a normal egg anymore. And the frustrating thing for women is it doesn't happen when we think of ourselves as granny. It happens when we think of ourselves as quite still in our prime. From an egg's perspective, that's what happens. And I think it's important just to reflect that, you know, when we look back at human history, you know, only a couple of hundred years ago, the average time that we would survive for was a lot less. And so through evolution over hundreds of thousands of years, if, you know, in Mozart's time, the average age of survival would be 35. That's pretty young, really. But, you know, people used to die young. And, you know, it's really a modern phenomenon that we are so lucky that, you know, we have great nutrition and we have good health and we live a lot longer. So we can't change our age and the age of the eggs, but we can freeze our eggs. We can. We can freeze young eggs. And there are also some things that we can do in terms of the environment that the egg develops in. It's certainly not futile and I certainly, you know, often prescribe things like supplements to help create a healthy environment so that when the egg is presented with this challenge that we support the environment that the egg is developing in so that it has the best possible chance we can give it. And I certainly would never play down the importance of diet and lifestyle. I think it's absolutely fundamental. But I think it's also important to kind of counteract some of that, you know, kind of misinformation out there that we can influence our egg quality because we can't, because the egg is really unchangeable. But we can definitely influence the environment that our eggs are facing when they meet the challenge of meeting a sperm and making a baby. And certainly once you have an implanting embryo, the nutrition can affect your endometrium and it can affect the environment that the embryo is developing in. It can affect the nutrient supply that the embryo receives and it can affect your chance of having a baby. But it can't affect your DNA and it can't affect the metabolism of the egg. But egg freezing is amazing. I, I love egg freezing. I, I would never sell egg freezing as a cure-all for reproductive concerns, but I think it's an amazing, amazing technology. And it's really developed on my watch as a fertility specialist in training and also in practice over the last decade. And it's a process where we can encourage young, healthy eggs to survive 
on the side as a standby, as a backup plan. And, you know, I've had lots of babies in my practice when women now have come back to use frozen eggs, which I love. It's amazing. The thing about egg freezing is it's at its best as a proactive strategy. When you are young, when you have a reasonable egg count, when you have healthy eggs, because what goes in is what comes out. And if we want to create a strong resource and we want to freeze eggs, we've got to freeze them as young as practical. And I think a sweet spot is around 30. And you can keep eggs frozen. Actually, from a biological point of view, you can keep them frozen indefinitely. Oh, that was one of our questions is how long can you keep them frozen? frozen? So you can, you can keep them frozen for as long as you want from a, from a biological standpoint, as long as the conditions are constant from the egg's point of view, the day it went into the freezer is the day it comes out of the freezer. So it's metabolically arrested and it doesn't matter how long it's arrested for. It doesn't have a use by date. There are different legislative parameters, especially in Victoria where we are, that mean that you have to reapply to keep eggs frozen for longer than a decade. I've never had a patient knocked back in that situation and it's waived for women who freeze eggs when they are young in the context of a teenage cancer. They don't have to reapply to keep them frozen. It's, um, it's not a physical reason that you can't. It's a legislative concern. So why are younger eggs better than older eggs? Well, Really, it is those reasons we talked about that metabolically they're stronger, they're less likely to make a mistake. So we see in IVF when we look at success rates across age brackets that success rates do deteriorate with age if we look at genetically untested embryos. And that's because as we get older, more eggs make DNA mistakes in those meiosis events. Interestingly, if we look at DNA-tested embryos, there are similar rates of pregnancy at around 40 to 50% across all age brackets. So if I'm 40 and I happen to have a genetically tested normal embryo, that embryo has the same chance as a genetically tested embryo would have had when I was 35. It's just that it's more of a needle in a haystack to find that embryo from the eggs that I make at age 40. So if I'm 40 and I use eggs that I froze when I was 35, I'm going to find it easier to find a normal baby from those eggs. I'm going to find it even easier again if I used eggs that I froze when I was 30. If I use eggs that I froze when I was 30, it's going to be most of my embryos that are going to have the right DNA and going to have a good chance to make a baby. Whereas if they're eggs that I froze when I was 35, it would be about 50-50. Still, it's much better odds than finding a normal embryo when I'm 40 when about one in 10 is going to be normal. This is a question for me. I've seen online and it was, I can't remember who, I can't remember what they were. It was, it was someone in the health sphere making a claim that AMH could be increased with dietary changes. And I think we had just recorded our episode about AMH and I thought, surely that's not possible. (laughs) Can you increase your egg count? No, you cannot increase your egg count. So your egg count is what it is. The AMH is an interesting hormone and remember AMH is not a be-all and end-all. It is not a direct correlating level that will tell you exactly how many eggs you have or anything like that. It's a hormone measured in picomoles per litre. Like every hormone, it'll vary a little bit when you measure it. So if I measure my AMH on a Monday and I measure it again on a Friday, I would expect a slightly different level. So it's not a static measurement. There are also different things that can affect the amount of AMH in your bloodstream. 
your egg count doesn't change. Your egg count is what it is. It's just that this hormone is not a perfect measure of your egg count. It's an idea. So if I'm on the pill, I would expect my AMH to be slightly blunted. I wouldn't think there would be anything that I could do with my diet that would significantly vary my AMH at all from a first principles point of view. I guess if you were what we call hypothalamically suppressed, so if you had been, you know, so skinny in terms of something like anorexia or if you were really, really, really unwell that because of your skinniness, the brain hormones shut off a little bit and your ovulation stopped completely, that in itself can suppress the AMH levels a bit. So if you had a severe malnutrition and then you took a massive change in your diet to render that malnutrition, you know, to, to have good nutrition, then your AMH probably would change a little bit in the upwards direction. But for a normal person, that is not going to change with diet. So there's nothing you can do to change the ovaries you were born with. I use the analogy, and I've used this many times, I've used it before, of bra size because women get that they can be an A cup or they can be a double D. That's two ends of a normal spectrum. You know, some people even more than a double D. In terms of your ovary, it's the same. We're born with ovaries. Our ovaries vary significantly in size, just like other body parts vary in size. They vary in also follicle density, just like some people have thinner hair and some people have thicker hair. Some people's ovaries have more eggs and some people's ovaries have fewer eggs. It's just a normal biological characteristic. What we do see in IVF and in egg freezing is that per cycle, we can only stimulate extra follicles to develop if they're there in the first place. And so we have to work with what you've got. And there's different ways that we can try and maximize the yield of eggs in your cycle with reference to what you can do. What you've got is going to limit how well you do. So we've got to recognize where you're at on the spectrum, counsel you realistically, and you set your expectations based on what your ovaries are capable of. Some women, to get an amazing outcome from egg freezing, only need one cycle because they're blessed with a voluptuous ovary that is endowed with many eggs and others need to do a couple of cycles to get a great outcome and you can still get a great outcome if you're in that category. Unfortunately, the investment and the cost of doing it is increased if you need to do it over several cycles and, you know, so there is an advantage to being born with a bigger ovary but in terms of the plan you can create for yourself, you know, you can still create an amazing plan if you're born with a smaller ovary, it just takes a little bit more time and it takes a little bit more effort and it takes, unfortunately, a higher cost. When it comes to our eggs then, what can we change? So we can change our environment and we can change our lifestyle. So we know that reducing toxin exposures like alcohol in excess, smoking, uh, smoking is very bad for eggs and we do know that smoking means that a woman goes through menopause earlier. So women who smoke go through menopause earlier than women who don't smoke, which is interesting. So there are toxins that can reach our eggs. Excessive caffeine has been argued to be uh, a problem, but the average caffeine intake is fine. Excessive sugar and different endocrine disrupting chemicals are toxic to eggs. That's because they're toxic to our bodies in general and they're toxic to the environment that eggs grow in. So improving our general health and the adage of treating our body as a temple is going to improve fertility. And in terms of antioxidant therapies, they are really targeted at the body and at the developing embryo as opposed to the egg. We have been talking about eggs much more than we've been talking about sperm. 
sperm deliver a DNA package to the egg and the egg has to do a lot for that. Having a better quality DNA package from the sperm is making the egg's job a lot easier. So if your partner smokes, if your partner is significantly overweight, if your partner does not have a healthy diet, if your partner has excessive alcohol intake, these are all things that we can actually change. And men actually, unlike us, make sperm every day of their life and it takes about three months to make a whole new batch. We can really make the egg's job a lot easier by presenting it with better sperm and focusing on the male, paradoxically, may be the best thing that a couple can do to make better embryos. How does endometriosis affect egg health, egg count, egg quality? Endometriosis is a condition that can ravage the female pelvis and it's also a condition that can cause a lot of inflammation which can make the egg's life difficult as it traverses from the ovary into the fallopian tube and towards the uterus. One thing that we can do to improve fertility with endometriosis is diagnose it early. There's a lot of unfortunately scepticism about taking the pill in early endometriosis, but it is something that's really protective against fertility. Detecting the endo and taking measures so that it doesn't get worse while you're young means that when the time comes that you want to have babies, that you don't have to deal with the situation in such a difficult form. Surgeries for endometriosis can destroy ovarian reserve and they can destroy eggs. So the heat energy we use to strip things like endometriomas, which are endometriosis fill cysts on the ovaries, destroy not only the endometrioma but also surrounding egg tissue and can over time reduce your ovarian reserve and the available eggs there. Avoiding advanced disease as best we can is great. I would significantly recommend that you seek advice not only of a surgically minded person with endometriosis but also uh, potentially, if you're if you're worried about future fertility, maybe have a, a talk to an endocrinologist or a reproductive endocrinologist like myself, so that we can look into all the different medical strategies. Some people don't like the way they feel on hormone therapy, and it can be difficult because you really are between the devil and the deep blue sea. Endometriosis is a condition that gets worse over time. Endometriosis is a condition that recurs. We treat endometriosis as opposed to curing it. It's a tendency. There's a genetic basis. We know that women who have a family history are seven times more likely to have endometriosis than if they don't. And it's a difficult one. So I think, you know, freezing eggs young is something that you can do to be proactive. And, you know, having babies relatively young is a good thing you can do to be proactive. And in terms of medical management, you know, not writing off medical management because it's treading water and not letting the disease get worse. And it's the one thing that can protect you from multiple surgeries, which can have their own consequences in terms of depleting your ovarian reserve. If you have advanced endometriosis and you need IVF to conceive and you've had many surgeries and surgeries not on the cards moving forward, there's very little we can do in the body to improve egg quality. And again, we focus more on laboratory techniques. And you know, I, I would also direct you to the episode we did with David Gardner. There's a lot of research going on at the moment into antioxidant therapies in culture media. It's certainly something we're passionate about and focusing on 
at Melbourne IVF to improve across the board IVF outcomes, but particularly this kind of technology on a first principle basis is very useful for women with it. Another question we got was about the effect antibiotics might have on egg quality. So antibiotics, we don't think have any significant effect on egg quality. Actually, most drugs don't. Because of that phenomenon we spoke of that the eggs are relatively protected from the bloodstream. So, so nothing very... good can get in, but nothing bad can get in either. That's it. <laughs> well, some bad things can. Some bad things can. Some are all pervasive, like chemotherapy. Chemotherapy can get in and some toxins can get in. It's, it's one of those things. Not everything's delivered in the bloodstream. Some things deliver by diffusion. And cells that adversely affect the cells surrounding the egg also will adversely affect the egg. Unfortunately, they do perfuse into every cell in the body and they are not kind of targeted or specific. So, for example, that's why when you have chemotherapy, you lose your hair. In the ideal world, a doctor would say, let's send this drug to the cancer and, you know, preserve other dividing cells around the body. That's not how it works. We shoot chemo all over the body and there's a lot of collateral damage. Same with the ovary. And we find that chemotherapy agents are going to affect the DNA of the egg for up to three months. I actually think it might be even a little bit longer than that. So I'm always very cautious about starting an assisted reproductive treatment cycle uh, after chemotherapy. And, and that's why when we do fertility preservation for women who have an acute cancer diagnosis, we have to act really quickly. And often it's in close collaboration with their oncologists and they get the diagnosis and someone like me sees them the next day. And it's very confronting for that person to have to firstly take on a cancer diagnosis, to have to deal with the fact that they might need chemo and radiotherapy in the very near future and that their fertility is going to potentially be challenged by those therapies which are life-saving and that if they want to do something about it, they've got to do it right now. So it's incredible. And when I see a patient like that, I you know need to do what I would usually do in a couple of different consultations over time, giving them time to you know, read and understand and explore a lot of information. I have to deliver that on the day at the moment, document consent, get started. No matter where they are in the menstrual cycle, we just start. It's intense. We do want to do that though and potentially either freeze ovarian tissue or save eggs by freezing them or create embryos if they're in a, a solid relationship before they have that assault on their ovary. If you can do something about the environment in which the eggs mature, what role do supplements play? Because often women who are freezing their eggs or getting pregnant will be taking supplements for various reasons. So what do they take and what does it do? Folate's an important one and folate is a supplement that all women trying to conceive are recommended to take because folate's a methyl donor and it is important for all dividing cells and it's something that diet will give us a certain amount, but you have to eat a whole lot of leafy green cruciferous vegetables to get folate to absorb. So, you know, we usually say that most women should be on a folate supplement when they're trying to conceive. Antioxidants are molecules that combat what we call cellular oxidative damage or oxidative stress. The way that we make energy in our cells in our mitochondria is to change molecules around releasing electrons. And electrons are like little buzzy energy-filled particles that can damage cells. And that's really why we age, actually, through oxidative stress on our tissues. So antioxidants are 
molecules that mop up those free electrons so that they can't buzz around our cells and do damage. And there's lots of different antioxidants that are used in fertility, particularly also in the male to assist in you know, improving things like sperm morphology. We use lots of different molecules like ubiquinol, vitamin C, nicotinamide, melatonin as antioxidants. And the effects are general, not specific. And some people take these things. You'll find these things in skincare. You'll find these things, you know, general multis. People take them just to reduce oxidative stress in general and to... You mentioned melatonin. I think of melatonin as something to help me sleep. Yeah, well, it can do. So melatonin in nature is produced by a gland in our brain called the pineal gland. And it's a great regulator of body rhythms. And we think also one of the reasons I sometimes use melatonin in egg freezing is I think that it gets the cycle in sync. You know, a lot of people give a lot of artificial light in their day-to-day. You know, we, we live in electric globes at night where our previous generations would have been fast asleep and it disturbs our body rhythms. So melatonin can be great in that way. In terms of micronutrients, the best source of micronutrients is diet. Because it means you've got a healthy, varied diet with lots of healthy, fresh fruit, veg and proteins. I kind of think of supplements in that way as a bit of a shortcut, whereas you're going to have a lot more holistic benefit from focusing more on diet. I'm all for targeted supplementation. If you're vitamin D deficient, let's put you on some vitamin D and get you replete. There's probably no benefit to taking vitamin D if you're not vitamin D deficient, but a lot of people are because we're all very careful of the sun as we should be. In terms of micronutrients, anybody who's particularly having any difficulty trying to conceive, and especially if they have other conditions underlying that difficulty like polycystic ovarian syndrome or endometriosis, it's a great idea to see a clinical nutritionist. Wendy Fidelli works as part of our team and has come on our podcast before I'd recommend having a listen to some of her episodes but there's no replacement for an individualized personal assessment and consultation and certainly anyone particularly with restrictive diet should also have a fertility focused consultation so anyone with things like celiac disease or vegetarian or vegan or having a food allergy or intolerance should certainly see a clinical nutritionist to help them understand what they should do differently trying to get it a baby on board and throughout pregnancy to help a baby grow and be healthy. So there's definitely things that we can do in diet and lifestyle, but it will not affect your egg reserve and it will not affect your egg quality directly. It will affect the environment and the environment that your babies grow in will affect their future health too. Ovulation induction. So we've had a question about that, haven't we? We have, and we've we've never done an episode on it, and we have one planned. Yeah, we do. So that question we're going to defer to a full dedicated episode on that topic later in the season where we're welcoming Dr. Sippy Ben-Harim back to talk to us again about ovulation induction. Next question, can egg quality vary between cycles? Egg quality, again, can vary between eggs. So yes, it can. I mean, what a cycle is in terms of a natural cycle or an IVF cycle or an egg freezing cycle, each egg is going to be different. Each egg is going to have its intrinsic potential. Eggs that are absolutely perfect when collected, when frozen, still have to do a hell of a lot downstream of that to make a baby. It's one of those things that every egg is different. Every egg is unique. 
when you have an egg that does everything right in one cycle and you have an egg that doesn't do everything right in another cycle, one thing that we have to understand is that there is a lot of chance events, that there are a lot of chance events that that egg has to go through to make that normal embryo. And it could just be that the stars aligned for one embryo and it didn't for another. One thing that can happen with particularly women in IVF is that, you know, we overcome problems with numbers. IVF does not in many instances solve the underlying fertility issues. It doesn't aim to. You know, you are the age you are. You have the biological burden of disease that you have. Your partner has the biological burden of disease that you have. Any compatibility issues between sperm and eggs are still there. We're looking to overcome the odds that are stacked against you with the strength of numbers, hoping that we find that golden egg or golden embryo that rises to those challenges. But we don't directly cure or treat those challenges with IVF. What we do with IVF, and IVF laboratories range from more basic to extremely sophisticated, is through analysis and technology updates and research which are continuously under investigation, we implement strategies to, in the lab, give eggs and embryos their very best chance of success by optimising their environment and by ensuring that the chance elements that we can control are as controlled as possible. But we still need that underlying biology to come to the party and break through. And, you know, we're not magicians. We are scientists and we are doctors we need to honour that basic biology, there are some couples who will need a donor egg, who will try and try with their own eggs and will not succeed. And then with an egg from somebody younger who does not have the same burden of infertility, it can be so emotional when it's male factor as well, because a younger egg can compensate for a not so good sperm, much better than an older egg can. So you can have a situation where initially a couple have been trying for years and years and years and it's malfactor infertility, but they just come for help that little bit too late and egg quality is a concern and egg numbers are a concern. And that's when you get into that vicious spiral of going through potentially cycles and cycles of unsuccessful IVF. So I would say, firstly, if you can avoid that situation, that is ideal and do ask for help and look for help earlier. It makes a huge difference. And then secondly, if you are in that situation and there's no other way out, think about a donor egg because a donor egg can sometimes bridge those otherwise unbridgeable gaps and help you have a healthy baby. In a good news story, I actually had a very good friend of mine have a baby this weekend using a donor embryo. And I can tell you this baby is loved and wanted and no one cares about where the genetics come from because it's that baby of that parent and that And that's what it took for them to make a family. Yeah, it's beautiful. And there's so many ways to make a family. Thank you so much, Raylia. And thank you, everyone, for sending through your questions. We've loved them. To support Knocked Up, leave us a review or recommend to a friend. Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and join Raylia at Dr. Raylia Lou. And email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. 